Good to have a seat, church. Welcome to NBC. Uh, we've got a great uh, message prepared for you today. We're in a series called The Games We Play. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and get it open to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. I want to invite somebody up. We're talking about money today because we're doing Monopoly, all right? You can't do a series on, on games and not talk about the greatest board game ever created by mortal man, Monopoly. Uh, and so in the lobby, we've got a table set up, and this, this man right here, I want you to understand, both he and the ministry he represents are tremendous, tremendous friends to our church. Uh, without them, uh, I doubt we would be in this room. They were the ones that stood side by side with us uh, throughout the, the grand project and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, they're great friends to us, great ministry partners to us. And uh, so I asked Gary to come up and just kind of let us know what's going on with the Solomon Foundation and out in the lobby. So let me turn this on for you, my friend, and uh, take it away. The Solomon Foundation is a 501c3 not-for-profit ministry. It's known as a church extension fund. We have been in, in uh, ministry and existence for 11 and a half years, starting with half a million in uh, startup funds. Today, we are over 1 billion. That represents over 500 churches that have loans with us, and it represents that all of the churches that we have a loan with, from the time we closed the loan, we counted the baptisms, over 150,000 people have been baptized into Christ. Our core values are these. Number one, to honor God. Number two, to help people know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen. I don't know another financial entity that has those two core values. The <laughs> third is, and this is where it touches you, <clears throat> is that we offer and our goal is to offer a, an excellent competitive interest rate to all our investors. Number four is... We want to help churches take the next step, and often that is because we're able to make loans to these congregations. They're able to expand their ministry, their facilities, and expand their touch to an unchurched community. And do we need more Christian people? Number five is to have fun. And what more fun can you have than you use the resources God has given you, you place it on deposit at Solomon. Solomon is able then to touch the life of a church, touch the lives of people who have not been reached yet for Jesus Christ, and you have had an impact. I ask you to pick up one of these brochures, take it home with you, take a look at it. I'll answer any questions as I'm in the lobby. Hey, thank you, brother. Let's give Gary a hand. Uh, go pay him a visit out in the lobby. Actually, go ahead and take that with you. Um, so, you know, I want to say something that they've inspired me on generosity on so many different levels. One of the things that they do um, and I'll use this to kind of get us kicked off this morning, is, and I don't know of another bank in the world that does this, uh, they tithe off of their profits. So they take it, they take 10% of that, and they write checks back to the churches that have loans with them. I mean, think about that. When was the last time Chase sent you a check and said, God bless you, uh, we just want you to know we care, and, and so here's some money back off your mortgage. Uh, that, I think the Lord's return will happen far before that probably will. Um, but they are really the, um, to me, the gold standard of the field that they're in, the church extension fund. And so I want to commend them to you. And just um, maybe use that as a way of kind of going, jumping into things and saying, you know, the difference between a life that is lived where you have, you're honoring God with your resources and the first fruits of, of what he's given to you. And you're free from worry about money. Imagine that. Uh, you've got plenty. You're able to share, share generously. 
but you're not walking around like most people are. Uh, 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 47% of people who make six figures or more. Almost half. Uh, and we're there and we're, you're, you're, not, you're not anxious, you're not worried all the time. Your bills are paid. You're able to do great things with money. If somebody has a need, you can help them. That's what God wants for us. That's what he always wanted for us. So what he offers us is he basically says, listen, there are a lot of people that chase wealth. And when you chase wealth, you tend to not end up with wealth, at least not permanent wealth, the kind of the eternal wealth that we end up with uh, as Christians. Instead, he says, pursue godliness with contentment. That sounds good. Godliness and contentment. He says, that's true wealth. Now, uh, we're going to take a look at Monopoly. Do you guys know this fellow on the screen here, this man? Um, he's known as the Monopoly man by most, but he actually has a name. Does anybody know his name? Uncle Pennybags. So he has a real name. His name is Uncle Pennybags. And I want to suggest to you that when it comes to kind of things here, there's a lot you can learn from the game of Monopoly. Uh, you can compare its values to the values of the kingdom Monopoly was, depending on who you ask, um, either it was started by uh, Mr. Darrow, we'll talk about him in a second, or there was a woman who created an original version of this, but nobody wanted it because it talked about basically the evils of capitalism. And then so nobody wanted it. So Darrow comes up with uh, the game of Monopoly with the complete opposite of that, which is basically the way you win the game is not just um, do you do well, but you drive everybody else out of business. That's how you win. And so that becomes extremely popular. Now, when he first went in and proposed this to the game companies, they all rejected him. That's an oopsie. 500 million Monopoly board games, not digital even, just board games have been sold. More than a billion people have played the game. And they told him that they thought that the game was too long. That families didn't want to play games that were longer than 45 minutes long. And they said that they weren't sure that it had a clear winner. There is a clear winner. It's whoever's left when everybody else is dead and you own everybody else's stuff. So eventually, Darrow decides he's going to grab it. He's going to produce it. And then he's going to uh, make all the money off of it. Does pretty well. And eventually, Parker Brothers comes in and acquires it. And since then, it's been a phenomenon. The longest game of Monopoly ever played lasted 70 days. Now, you think that's crazy. I've, I've done a two-dayer before with some friends of mine when I was younger. Uh, there's a man who made a Monopoly board and game pieces and everything out of precious metals. And he sold it for $25,000. The hotels were actually, at the time, you'd have to pay a lot more for it now, were made out of solid gold. The houses were made out of solid silver. Every year at Columbia University, there is a life-size Monopoly game that takes place, a live one, where people are the actual pieces on the board, and they draw a huge uh, game board, basically, that's life-size, and everybody kind of plays the thing along. People are dressed up as irons, or they've got real irons and real dogs and real pieces that they move around as people roll these huge dice. This is a game that, especially for my generation. We were raised on this one. This was the defining game if it was played on a board, and not a video game, an actual game. This defined what it meant to grow up in the country we're in. 
And if it wasn't that, it was the game of life, which has a very similar kind of plot line, actually. And if it wasn't that, it might have been Shoots and Ladders, which has a similar plot line. The idea of Monopoly is you make sure that you bankrupt everybody else in the game. And that you acquire as much stuff as you possibly can. And so this is the game that me and my two best friends would play. We'd get together, we'd perch right in front of my mom's front door, much to her chagrin. We would sprawl everything out there, and there we would sit, and we would roll the dice, and we would yell at each other, and we would claim somebody cheated, and we would do all the things that you do when you play Monopoly. But the pursuit of wealth as a goal in and of itself, from a biblical standpoint, is a fool's errand. Because if you win at wealth and lose at faith, it's like winning king of the hill only to find you're standing on top of the wrong hill. Today we're going to look at Paul's advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in a kind of a, a short survey. It's abridged, it's not everything, it's not comprehensive, but it's a nice taste test of what the Bible says overall about money and possessions, illustrate, using the illustrations from America's favorite board game, Monopoly. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read verses 6 to 12. And listen to what old man Paul says <clears throat> to Timothy. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich follow in to, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves. Interesting there, that's the word impale. The pierced is a little more Sunday school friendly. But the idea here is they run themselves through with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life with which God has called you, which you have declared well before many witnesses. So he says, all right, people chase wealth. They, they want money. And they go and they, 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 they pursue it. And in, as they do it, they fall into all sorts of calamity and temptations. Anybody in here? know somebody who took a wild risk with their money and got cleaned out. Any crypto fans in the house? Don't, don't, sorry, maybe too soon for some. Um, anybody, anybody have a lot of Enron stock when it, went, when it folded up? Or anybody get out over their skis, buy up a bunch of houses in 2008? Well, yeah, by the millions people did it. And there's nothing wrong with trying to earn money. I mean, the Bible talks about being a diligent earner. But the difference is, and, and there's a line there, between, hey, I think it's wise of us to try to do the best we can to um, a, a, an almost addictive impulse to wanting to acquire wealth because of what it feeds you, status, power, right? And as you go ahead and, and do that, what Paul's saying is, as you do it, you're going to run yourself through with a lot of stuff, it's a very dangerous place to live, as opposed to saying, I'm going to pursue godliness with contentment, meaning whatever God gives me or entrusts to me, I'm grateful for it. 
which keeps you then, because you're content, from chasing other stuff. You probably are well aware of the sensation. I have it all the time. You buy something and you're excited about it. I did, it happened to me yesterday. I went golfing with some friends. I just got a brand new set of clubs. They're good ones too. I've, I've, I've had the same set of clubs for 15 years. It was time. The grips were falling off and everything. Was like, all right, I'm doing it. Christmas time, I want clubs, babe. I got clubs. And I was excited. And then here comes my buddy with a brand new set of clubs that's nicer than mine. What's his problem? Like, like, why are you ruining my day with this when, when, when I was all excited until I saw the clubs he had in his bag? Right? That kind of thing, right? Godliness with contentment. Contentment. Oh, what a blessing it is to not sit there and go, boy, you know, I wish I had a different wife, different husband, different kids, different house, different this or whatever, and the anxiety and the, and the resentment that that builds up in the heart of a person. Pursue a righteous and godly life, he says. Fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to eternal life. So we start at go in Monopoly. We start at the beginning of the game. We start eh, more or less with nothing. You get $1,000, I think it is, in Monopoly money, fake money, as you take off. But you didn't earn it. You're just giving it. Okay, here you go. Here's a little starter fund. Take off and go. Now, what we learn is, as we talk about the uh, beginning of the game, this is where you win or lose the game in a lot of ways. you got two philosophies that are most popular. One is, I buy anything I land on that I can buy. Okay? All the property, I get it all. And the other is very conservative. I might buy a little here, a little there, but I want to hang on to my cash. Okay? You can win doing both. I think sucking up all the property you can is the wise move initially, but we can argue about that later. The, let's start, so let's start with spending. The Bible talks about being a prudent spender. One of the ways that you get yourself into trouble in the game is either by not spending enough, and you don't buy any property while everybody else buys up all the property, or you buy too much, and when you get the property and you get a monopoly, you start throwing up houses and hotels too fast, you get out over your skis to where now it's like I got houses and hotels, but I got no money. And right about the time everybody else starts throwing up hotels and houses on theirs, and now I don't have any cash, but i got to pay rent. And that's how you got to find the balance. When you overspend on hotels, the money spent plus the risk creates an overextension. But more important than that, what I've found is if, I bought, if I'm building on things too fast, I start focusing too much on my own monopoly, and I'm not paying attention to what's going on on the rest of the board. Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Yep. Not, not put your money where your heart is. That's not what he says. Where your money goes, that's where your heart goes. Suppose you buy some shares of General Motors. Guess what? You all of a sudden are super interested in General Motors. You start paying for private school for your kid, all of a sudden you've never been a better school parent. Suppose you are giving to help African children with AIDS, then you see an article on the subject and now you're hooked. If you're sending money to plant churches in India and an earthquake hits India, you watch the news and you pray. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And that's one of the reasons why in the very next breath he says, so therefore... You don't store up self for yourself treasures on earth. Because that means your heart's going to be on earth. 
Instead, you store up treasures in heaven. You want your, you want your heart to be heavenward, you want your heart to be focused on the things of God, then that's what you do with your money. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Reallocate some of your money, maybe most of your money, even from the temporal to the eternal. Put your resources, your assets, your money, your possessions, your time, talent, treasures, energies into the things of God and watch what happens. Your, your heart will follow your treasure. Secondly, uh, wise savers. We're encouraged to save some by the Bible. You can go too far with this, but the the, uh, the main idea here is that there's going to be a time when a famine will hit the land. So you want to have some. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Now, statistically, when you start the game, <clears throat> you're most likely to land on this square right here. Chance. So on your first roll, the, the, at a, every other square on the board, you're most likely to land on chance. Chance is where there's a stack of cards, you pick it up, and it just throws a curveball at you of some kind. Uh, here's a slide showing uh, all the different outcomes of the chance square. <coughs> so uh, you've got, you can go to the nearest utility, you can go down, down no, notice, notice down here. 44% of the time you stay on chance. You don't go anywhere. But these are the ratios of the time you got a 6.25% chance of hitting St. Charles. You've got all of these different kind of things. Feel free, by the way, this is all free from the good folks at MIT. Um, but each of these, paying income tax, being able to buy a utility, going all the way back around the board, buying property, railroads, community chest, there's another stack of cards with a bunch of mysteries in there. And you don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen today, tomorrow, or any other time. And that's why a lot of times the mixture of the different wars going on in here with our behaviors mixed with the chance card is how we end up in trouble. We, we, were, we were finally putting a few points on the board, and then December happened to us. Rain comes. We didn't know our roof leaked. We do now. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm like in the bathroom, and all of a sudden, I'm like, why is there a wet spot on the floor? Look up. Right in the forehead. Coming in through a light fixture. And I was like, oh, man. How long has that been going on? I walked out in the bedroom, stepped in another puddle. It's like, oh, baby, this is bad. And I started looking around. It wasn't just, it was like five, six leaks in the roof. Had a kid get in a car accident. Got to pay for car repairs. Uh, it seems, oh, guess the propane tank needs to be refilled. Great. Oh, hey, you know, this is what's going on. Oh, yeah, by the way, hey, it's the end of the year. Can you give some extra to this cause? Yeah, okay. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what happened? Chance card happened. The chance card. You don't know what's going to happen when. We were a newlywed couple. My firstborn, Anna, had some problems when she was born. And she was born on Christmas Eve. Needed to have surgery on January 2nd. So those of you who are familiar with how the old school deductible system went, uh, and we had a really expensive kind of high-end PPO plan, catastrophic only. So it was max deductible followed by max deductible. Bam, bam. And we were, I mean, we were like 20, I was 20, how old was I? 27? Something like that. 
chance card. So when the Bible says you're going to land on chance at some point, so if you don't see coming, you want to make sure that you're not living without anything in the barn. Proverbs 21.20, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. If your paycheck comes in, you're like, hey, I got 300 bucks left over. I'm going to go buy a dress or whatever. Great. You can do that as long as you got some other oil in the barn. But if you don't, it's foolish to just continue to go paycheck to paycheck by choice. That's what the Bible's saying. Again, 47% of people who make six figures live paycheck to paycheck. So it's not just an income thing. It's a behavior thing. Number three, the Bible encourages us to be cautious debtors. Be very careful about going into debt. Doesn't, doesn't say universally it's wrong to do. But I don't know if you know this, but the most common space to land on in any turn in Monopoly, when it's your turn, is this place. Jail. You have a greater chance of ending up in jail on any turn, anywhere on the board, by design. People think that the game was built to orient around go, where you start, but it's not. It's built to drain toward the jail. So you can go to jail more ways than you can get anywhere else. I mean, think about it. You roll doubles three times, you can do it. You get a chance card that can send you there, a community chess card that can send you there. Uh, now, if you land on it and you didn't get sent to prison, so to speak, in, in game terms, then you're just visiting. But you can get to jail in a whole bunch of different ways. And when you're there, you can't earn money. So if you're in jail and somebody lands on your property, you don't get paid, which is kind of similar to being in debt. Money comes in and you never really see it. Everybody else takes it before it even hits your bank account. Visa gets it first, the mortgage payment gets it first, the cars get it first, or whatever the case may be. When you're in jail, you can't earn money and you can't move around the board. And there are really only three ways you can get out. You've got, you can roll doubles three times, or at all, and that will get you out. You can wait three turns, then you automatically get out. It's like, it's like serving a 15-year prison sentence or something, and you're out. Or you can get the infamous get-out-of-jail-free card. And you can get that in chance. You can get it in community chest. You can just get lucky. Almost like the equivalent of, hey, they, you know, the cops blew the evidence uh, chain, so you're out. But you know what stinks about debt? There's a phase of the game, if you're losing, where you want to be in jail. Because everybody else owns everything, and you don't, and you don't have any money. Jail is the perfect place to be. And you are praying that you don't roll doubles. Because you don't want to be out. You want to be in prison. I mean, think about how weird and pathological that kind of is, but isn't that kind of, isn't that why you don't go to your mailbox when you're deep in debt? Because there are bills in there, and if I don't go to the mailbox, then I don't have bills in my mind. Or I'll get them, and I'll set them there, but I'm not opening them, because I don't want out of jail. I want to, it gives me a feeling of being safe. Just like the Monopoly board, sisters and brothers, is meant to send you to jail, society is built to send you into debt. It is. Try an experiment. Uh, let's say today 
uh, go home and do a search, any web search for a basketball. Just say, I want to buy a basketball. Google it. This week, I want you to watch how many ads you get for basketballs. It's astonishing. You'll get them everywhere. The streaming commercials on Spotify, if you have the free plan, will start talking to you about basketballs. Everything. Spend, 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 spend. Now, they don't care if you have the money or not. All they care is that you have it right then. That's it. Has anybody received an offer for a new credit card recently? Well, why would they? Balance transfers. We would prefer you're in debt with us than them, is what they're saying. It's built for debt. Just like Monopoly's built for jail. Proverbs 22.7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. This is how sick it got in our friendship. We had three of us lived about ten houses apart between us. We're like in a triangle of houses. If you counted all the spaces between the houses, there were about ten houses there. And I had two, my two buddies. Grant was my oldest friend. He lived a few houses down. Danish kid, uh, tall, lanky dude, six foot seven. Um, Tony Palazzolo, my Italian buddy, he lived around the corner, redheaded Italian guy. I don't know. Uh, let 23andMe sort that one out. But he was, he's still to, my, to this day probably my overall, my closest longtime friend. We would sit there and we would play. And it went the same way every single time. Somehow, we couldn't figure out why Grant would continue to land on everybody's spaces, and he couldn't, he never ran out of money. Like, what has happened? Well, Grant was the banker. And you, we learned eventually he was sliding some 500s under the old box cover over there. And that's how he was getting it done, right? Because that's what it does to you when you're in debt. You start cheating, right? Or on the other hand, Tony, never to miss an opportunity, and I'm really not profiling the lad. I got a little Italian in me myself. But, but he went to loan sharking in the game. Tony would say, so if you got to his property and you landed on it, you didn't have the money to pay him, he would say, okay, I'll let you pay me in the next 10 turns, but you got to pay me 50% more. I mean, literally loan sharking in the game of Monopoly. We're like 8 or 10, and this guy's figured this out already, Right. So you're going around the board, and I'm just sitting in the middle trying to figure out what to do. Well, eventually, I, I either, okay, he's going to land on my property, but he's, he's already putting up money in his pocket to pay me no matter what. He's going to loan shark to me. So the only solution I've got in order to pay Tony is to charge Grant twice as much as Tony's charging me if I want to stay alive in the game. So because I owe him 50%, so you got to pay me 100%. And now we're forcing each other into debt, and in order to pay everybody's debts, everybody's cheating and extorting and doing all these different things just so we can stay alive in a stupid board game, only to find out that as we grow up, that's exactly how life works in a lot of places. My wife and I are watching the Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix. Unreal what this guy did. And it's like, you would have been so obscenely wealthy anyway. Why would you do that to people? Well, some psychiatrist somewhere will have to sort that out. 
On the other hand, you know, you go back and go to Christmas time. Remember Mr. Scrooge? The way he taught, he dealt with everybody around him. See, having more money doesn't make you any more generous. People think, oh, if I had more, I'd give it away. Now, proportionately, people give away less as they get richer. I've observed this in the church world. People who give to church, it's not the wealthiest guy in the church that usually gives the most. It's your kind of upper middle class person that just has a godly worldview. And they're generous. They kind of just see money as there to be used for good. And then sometimes people who are the wealthiest give very little, especially proportionately. And we see this everywhere, born out in society. You see it when you're kids. We start doing life that way. If I can't make it, i got to come up with some little scam to make sure that I get by, even if it's at your expense. After all, only one of us gets to win this game. That's the way Monopoly's played. Right? Um, we're going to launch a uh, Financial Peace University uh, course here. At, and next, you'll find out more about it next week. But February 15th, it's going to start. And the reason is we don't want to be a church that just says, here's God's plan for 10% of your income. <laughs> God wants all of it because he gave it all to you. So he wants you to have a kingdom mindset with all of it. And that includes spending, includes debt, includes earning, it includes being honest and, and uh, godly in how you deal with those things. So be on the lookout for that. And then lastly, the part of Monopoly that never made the game, generosity. You want to blow somebody's mind? Try this one on. You're in a game of Monopoly, there's like four of you, and somebody's finally getting at the end of their rope, and you're doing really well. And they land on boardwalk with hotels on it. You go, you know what? I got it. I'll pay. Step in and pay it for them. It's like the monopoly gods screech from heaven. You can't do that. You're supposed to let them die so you can take their property and take their stuff. You can't pay somebody's debt for them. You can't. You can't. You can't, but you can. When you have it, A, you got to have it in order to be able to do it. And my experience, again, with, with working with people ranging from very poor, as in homeless or worse poor, to, to some of the wealthiest people walking the earth, is it's not just about whether you have it or not. It's about what's going on in here, and it's about having a godly outlook. Here's what Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part, there's your key, the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. The forgotten part of monopoly, what separates Christianity from a secular view of money. In a secular view of money, what you give away comes last. But in the Christian worldview, what goes to God goes first. He gets the best, the best part of what we make. So and he doesn't get the scraps. The very first uh, offering kind of story that you see in the Bible is Cain and Abel. People think it's way down the road. It's not. It's like first family stuff. Remember the story? Um, Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord. Abel brings the, the, the sheep, the, I mean the, the lamb, the first 
choices stuff. Cain kind of brings ghetto vegetables, weak old bananas essentially, lays them out there, and God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And Cain, instead of saying, oh, you know what, I probably have not done that. I, I need to adjust my sacrifice to, to please God. Instead, he kills his brother. Now, before that happens, God says to Cain, listen, if you, don't, if you do the right thing, will I not accept yours also? He's basically saying, Cain, I, I want to accept your sacrifice, but I, come on, man. Like, do the right thing. And so Cain, instead of doing what God asked him to do, kills his brother. So he, he puts murder on top of the previous sin. Why is it that we strain so hard against doing what's right in the sight of God in this regard? I don't know. Um, but it's an ongoing problem that's going on. I mean, you can see it all the way through Scripture. In Haggai, it's another deal. They're rebuilding the second temple, and they... they uh, they go to, uh, to build it, and God, through Haggai, says, wait, 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 what are you guys building here? Like, that, the, the first temple, did any of you guys see that one? That's kind of what we ought to be doing here. Why, why are you guys living in mansions while the house of God's in disrepair, he says. And so he says, so now your pockets are going to be filled with holes. So whatever you put in them, it's just going to run through your fingers, Right? Make a plan to honor the Lord with the best of what he provides for you. The best. Um, if we were to take all the messages together, you took everything the Bible says about money, everything, and you tried to put it in a sentence, this is a little bit of a run-on sentence, but we would read something like this. God has been unspeakably generous to us and calls us to honor him fully with what he provides. That doesn't mean just giving. That means all the other things we've talked about. Debt, spending, earning, honesty and integrity, be, being willing to share with those who are less fortunate. It's all of that. But the prism is he was unspeakably generous to us and everything we get, it's all his anyway. He entrusts some to us. And then the question becomes, okay, now what am I going to do with what he's entrusted to me? The Bible teaches us that God wants us to be diligent, earners, prudent, spenders, cautious, debtors, wise, savers, generous givers. And our ability to be faithful in our stewardship of what God has entrusted to us impacts nearly every aspect of our lives. It can bring blessing or tension to a marriage. It can bring a blessing or entitlement to children. It can bless the church or it can result in missed opportunities or a failure to realize a church's full potential, financial stress in the church. It can allow us to hear the well done of God or the depart from me, from God. Most importantly, it can lead us further from God or become an area of profound offering and worship to God. Money doesn't have to scare us, worry us, do any of that stuff. It can be one of the most profound areas of life for worship. To be able to say, God, I recognize that you've done this for me that you've entrusted this for me, that I don't need to worry about this stuff because I know you are with me and you are providing for me. So I don't worry about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink or what I'm going to wear, but I'm going to seek first the kingdom and trust that all these things will be added as well. And then to take it and offer something 
choice. Like David said, far be it for me to offer God something that costs me nothing. So now, as we gather around the Lord's table, uh, let's take our spirit of sacrifice to that table. Remember, we're celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus, the ultimate offering to God in the body and blood of Jesus. You should have received the elements on your way in. If you didn't, go ahead and put your hand in the air and we'll be happy to bring it to you. As we gather here, we look at the bread and the cup and we remember the body and the blood of Christ. And we see the generosity of God. We, we tangibly hold the generosity of God in our hand. You can feel it. You can smell it, taste it, touch it. So now, uh, let us pray as we take communion together. Father, each week we come together and we do this very simple thing as a way of connecting to you and one another, as a way of saying, we're in, Father. We, we love you. We, we acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ and we, we want to commit our lives to that, to his cause. We're saying thank you everything that we are. So Father, we pray that that we will not serve two masters. We recognize, Father, we've got one, and that is Jesus Christ. So Father, free us of our anxiety, free us of our materialism and greed, our stinginess, because we understand this is no game, Lord. This is one life you've given us and we want father to store up treasures in heaven rather than here on earth we pray this in jesus name